Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. On today's show, we will get into why attrition is the most important factor in Roger Federer's comeback to the tour at age 39, coming off knee surgery. I'll get into his Doha results, ultimately falling at the hands of Nicolas Basilashvili, who eventually won the tournament. Stuff to unpack with Basilashvili a little bit there, and uh, getting into that match. Meanwhile, in Mar- in Marseille, Daniil Medvedev lifts another trophy, and with it, not because of it, but with it, he becomes the world number two. He is the first player outside of the big four to reach the number two ranking spot since Leighton Hewitt did it in 2005. Quite the seal was broken here with Medvedev's ranking position, and I will uh, get into how he, uh, or not how he did it, but his rankings breakdown is very interesting. And I'll have quick thoughts on that uh, in addition with his match against P.H. Air Bear in the final. Then uh, the DB4 stat of the week. And I want to get into your comments. The reason being it is college basketball postseason time. And I couldn't do a mailbag last week. I won't be able to do one this week. I am uh, traveling. Syracuse is in the tournament. March Madness and, and all that. So, um, I wanted to get to your comments on this week's Monday Match Analysis. I will do that. Uh, but let's start with Roger Federer, who beat Dan Evans in his second round match after he got the first round by, and it was a, a really impressive showing by Roger, a really entertaining match. Dan Evans had no fear. Ultimately, Federer actually just really played the, the big points admirably, and held his nerve a lot better than than Evans, who was pretty inspired. It was a good win by Federer against a player who was very comfortable on the court against him. They were practicing together, and I thought the the main takeaway from that match, besides the fact that Roger was hitting the ball well and doing the things that he does, which you got to expect. You you really do have to expect. You don't forget to hit a t- how to hit a tennis ball. Some other stuff can get a little bit more complicated, which I'll get into here. But in terms of ball striking and variety and point construction and weaponry and spot serving and, and, and some of those things, they are not they are going to be there. For really as long as Roger Federer lives, they're going to be there. Um then he fizzled out. He won the first set against Basilashvili. The second set was was hard fought. You know, Nicholas was was really playing at a great great level, and I thought I I was I thought that as I was watching the match against Federer, but then what he did after that, you know, kind of going all the way and and winning the title, it just solidified what we were seeing against Federer. You know, it was the the inkling that he was playing at a really, really high level, but there's always the thought, well, is Federer not making him uncomfortable enough? Is is it just kind of looking that way? And then we kind of saw as the tournament progressed that, no, Basilashvili, former world number 16, with tons of firepower, was really just playing great. With that being said... There was a apparent, visible, and obvious physical deterioration 
for Federer by the end of the Basilashvili match, especially in the third set. Back-to-back, you know, two-plus-hour matches on back-to-back days after 411 days off the tour for Roger Federer. It's to be expected. To be expected. A couple things. One, it takes longer to get the old engine going again. Just takes longer. If Roger was 25, I have no doubt that if he, if something catastrophic happened, happened when Federer was 25 and he had to take a year plus away from the tour, I think he would come back and it wouldn't take so long to be in the condition that he would need to be right off, right, right away. I have no doubt about that. But he's 39. It's probably going to take a little bit longer. There is no replacing match play. You can't replace it. It's always, you can practice. You can be in the gym. Nothing you can do can simulate what being in a match is. The extra tension, the extra stress, and the extra pressure of having you know an, an opponent when it comes to something like the serve. You're going to serve 5% harder in a real match. It doesn't matter. When, when you have a ball hopper, you can hit 100 serves. But it's not going to be quite as strenuous as hitting 100 serves in a match. Never. Never will be. So I think that Federer felt the effects of that coming into the second day. He did fizzle out against uh, Basilashvili. But would it be some kind of overreaction to say we saw a glimpse of what will of what Roger Federer's main challenge, main hurdle will be in the future as he tries to come back and reach the level that he was at when he left the tour for the knee surgeries. Would that be an overreaction after two matches? Because if you do a show like I do, you're prone to overreaction. I mean, let's face it. I have to come up here and I have to to talk for 25, 30 minutes about the results from last week and, and the things I saw. And by nature... That can sometimes be an overreaction. No, it could not be an overreaction. It can lead to overreactions. But I don't think so in this case. I don't think it's an overreaction to say that we got a glimpse into what Federer's challenge is going to be. It's going to be attrition. Federer's success or how successful he's able to be in this next chapter and the heights that he might be able to reach... It's mostly going to be about, can he play back-to-back matches two-plus hours? Can he go a full week in a Masters 1000 event without being physically compromised by the end of it? And most importantly, can he play best out of five for two weeks and survive that physical test? Obviously, that's what is most important here. He's pretty good at you know, playing quickly in the first week and not playing the lesser opponents um, or dispatching the lesser opponents in a efficient manner early on. But sometimes you just can't control it. Sometimes you're going to have a five-set round of 16 or a a gruesomely physical four-set quarterfinal, and then you have to play the semifinal in two days. And then that, that might go five sets. Can you do that? probably going to be the biggest hurdle. Now, how can I defend 
my uh, how can I defend the statement that I'm not overreacting to his first t tournament back in Doha, just trying to get his sea legs under him, losing to Basilashvili, who who was playing great, back to back, tough three setters. I can defend the idea that I'm not overreacting based on what we've seen from him ever since really 2015. A pattern that I think has emerged ever since 2015. Ever since 2015, it's it's the attrition that has been an issue for him. That has plagued him, I think, mostly late in the season. Signs of decline in Federer's long-term endurance. U.S. Open, zero semifinals since 2015. It's the last major of the year. It's after the clay court season. It's after Wimbledon. It's after a bunch of, I think, uh, pretty important, you know, a, a string of Masters 1000s tournaments that Federer has traditionally played. It's the end of the season. Everyone's banged up. Everyone's tired. The courts are slow. It's physical. Can get hot in New York. Zero semifinals since, 20, since 2015. World Tour Finals. A tournament that Federer used to love, used to play great there. Zero finals since 2015. A surface that suits him. It's because it's at the end of the year. Motivation is a factor, as we've discussed, but zero, zero finals since 2015. It's because it's at the end of the year. But now let's compare 2017, where Roger was tremendous and reached world number one for a brief period of time there in 2017. Let's compare that with 2019. Last time we saw Federer healthy on tour. Well, in 2017, Roger Federer was 13-3 and in deciding sets. 5-0 and in five setters. Won some key ones, obviously. Won the five-setter against Nadal in the Australian Open that year. And won some five-setters in the lead-up to that Nadal match. Um, won the five-setter against Marin Cilic. Um, oh, you know what? I'm getting that confused. Scratch that. Scratch that. Um, but 5-0 and oh and five-setters that year. In 2019, Roger Federer was 7-5 and five in deciding sets. It's not a terrible record. It's not overly, you know, that's not ugly. Uh, he, he has had, if you're going to a deciding set, you're, you're obviously playing an opponent that's going to, that's pushing you. So anything above 500 is fine. But 0-2 in five setters. Lost the marathon epic classic to Djokovic at Wimbledon. And then lost the Grigor Dimitrov match at the U.S. Open. Where again, physically, not 100% by the end of that. Worn down. Not himself. So that is the context at which we see that Roger Federer in his first tournament back is dealing with an extreme version of of what I think we can expect to see is his biggest challenge in this comeback. It's not, can he play sensational tennis at any point? I'm quite certain he will be able to do that. He will be able to play sensational tennis for periods of time. How long? How long can he maintain it? Can he play it at the end of the tournament? Can he play it on one day rest after a very physical match? These are the questions. So my big takeaway in Doha is, of course, I I enjoyed seeing Federer back on the court um, 
and he played some scintillating tennis at times. But my big takeaway is, well, we probably just saw just a little sneak peek of Federer's biggest hurdle and what's going to be the biggest challenge for him. Basilashvili, of course, went on to win the tournament, and I do want to address that real quick. You know, you can't in good faith talk about Nicholas Basilashvili without just laying out the facts here about the situation that he's in. This was incredibly shocking. Of course, he, he had lost nine matches in a row at one point in 2020. He went 4-14 four and 14 in 2020. He came into Doha on a five-match losing streak, and overall... He had lost 14 of his last 16 matches. So it gave the tennis world kind of an opportunity to ignore him because he wasn't winning anything. Where in the backdrop, here's what was happening. He was accused by his ex-wife of attacking her in front of their five-year-old son. He was arrested and he was released from jail on 30,000 US dollars bail. If he's found guilty of his charges, he faces up to three years in prison. He denies all allegations, and I could not find any info on what the next steps are when it comes to legal proceedings. But you'll notice he doesn't have a clothing sponsor right now. I believe he used to be sponsored by Lotto or Lotto, and they're out, and you can't blame them because you can't expect a brand to want to attach themselves to someone who's currently carrying that kind of baggage. And all I can say is it's kind of shocking that the ATP has no problem doing that. So that's all I have to say about, about that. Uh, but he was playing great. Um, extremely, extremely dangerous player with, he's honestly the biggest hitter on tour. You know, I don't, I don't hesitate before I say that he's truly the biggest hitter on tour. You know, he's can, can miss a lot, can be inconsistent. Really long strokes, not conducive for quicker surfaces, but can be really dangerous when he's finding the court, and he was here. Let's get into Mersai. Daniil Medvedev up to number two in the world. Um, you know, it's funny. The one thing I want to point out about this is if Daniil Medvedev were only allowed to play hard courts, if he was banned from clay and grass, he would be the fifth-ranked player in the world right now. He would have over um, over 8,500 rankings points. I did the addition. Well over. That's without clay, without grass. I've pointed this out in the past, but every single big event from the City Open in early August, or no, not, not August. The City Open would be in early July, I want to say. From the City Open all the way through the U.S. Open, the indoor hardcourt season in the fall, the start of the year at the ATP Cup, and the Australian Open. If you take the protected ranking system, which is obviously at the moment a two-year system, two years of protected rankings points, Daniil Medvedev has made the final or better at every single event. So it's no surprise that he's up there at number two. It has been nothing short of hard court dominance. That is not hyperbole. That is not exaggeration. That is what it has been 
for Daniil Medvedev. Dominance. The question is, would he trade some of those titles for, would he trade some of those W's to flip that U.S. Open F, that final F, to flip that to a W? Probably, but it's early on. He's learning. He's relatively young, even though he's somewhat of a late bloomer. And, you know, to compare him to like a Tsitsipas is, you know, I think it's important to remember he is... He is older, like a couple years older. But I was also impressed by, by what I saw in this final against uh, Airbear. He definitely showed superior match toughness to Airbear in this match because ultimately this was a, a really closely contested match and Airbear missed a key volley at 15-all and when he... Medvedev made a couple of great dipping returns from there at 5-6, and he broke to win the match in the third set. It's a sharp contrast from the second set, which went to a tie break, and Air Bear got the mini break there and served it out with like an inhuman volley, an amazing volley. So his volley won him the second set, an amazing volley on a huge point, and then uh, a really bad volley on a big point, trying to force a, a tie break ultimately cost him. Um, but this to me is Medvedev seeing himself through a very tough matchup. Air Bear has a really good backhand slice, plays a lot of off-pace balls, and is a net rusher, and is also a Frenchman. And strangely enough, Medvedev has had these really mystifying struggles against Frenchmen. But... He he got through it finally, and 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 he beat one. Not that he's never beaten one, but he's really struggled against the French for some reason. But most of all, Airbear is a net rusher, and Medvedev's flat strokes in the past have posed problems for his passing shots. And I just think that he's really gotten very good at rolling his passing shots cross court and using just his feel, especially on the backhand, actually slowing down his racket. And finding those cross-court angles, um, Medvedev's backhand racket speed has improved a ton for me, as have his dipping passing shots. So I really do think he's working through the traditional weaknesses that I pointed out earlier in his career, which is that he doesn't accelerate too much on the backhand, which makes it really hard for him to generate off of backhand slice and off-pace balls on his backhand side, and also the passing shots, which he's always kind of had trouble getting low and dipping at the net player's feet, which you really need to do. And I just see him improving upon that and making strides there, so I do want to point that out. Okay, it is time for the DB4 Tennis Stat of the Week. For more tennis history, check out www.db4tennis.com. This one on the big three and their effect on players in Grand Slams, kind of keeping other players who are good players, great players maybe even, but not quite to their level, and keeping keeping them at bay in spirit with Medvedev reaching world number two for the first time since anyone uh, since 2005. So from Wimbledon 2003 to the 2021 Australian Open, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have won 58 of 70 Grand Slam titles. That means they've won precisely 82.8% of slams. 
the rest of the 12 slams are divided like this. So few that I can just name them all. Murray and Vavrinka, three each. Roddick, Gaudio, Safin, Delpo, Chilich, and team all have one. There are players who won before Wimbledon 2003 and then made slam finals after that but just couldn't win another. And these are Hall of Fame players, Andre Agassi and Leighton Hewitt. There are players who won one Grand Slam but couldn't win multiple despite reaching other Grand Slam finals. Andy Roddick is one of those players. Juan Martin Del Potro, Marin Cilic. And then there are players who lost their chances to play additional Grand Slam finals thanks to the big three. And they were stopped in, in semifinals after that, uh, like David Nalbandian or Juan Carlos Ferrero or Kei Nishikori. So the, the, the list goes on and on, of course, of, of how the big three, especially in their primes, have just taken away from the successes that some of these players could have had, uh, had the, the era not been so top-heavy on the men's side. Okay, it is time to get to your comments. I'm going to try to run through these. I've selected 12. I posted on the YouTube community tab. Didn't tweet, didn't feel like it this time, but thank you for the uh, for everyone who commented. Remember, I can't get to every single comment. It's impossible, but uh, I do appreciate if you just copy and paste your same comment that you had this time. Try it again next time, and I might answer it. Um, if I, if I don't get to it this time, we'll start with Jared Gonzalez. Nobody had a more liked comment than this one. Can anyone challenge Nadal on clay this year? Who are his top five challengers and do any of them have a realistic chance? Well, I mean, the, the it is not French open power ranking season yet. It will be at some point. I'll, I'll start that at the, at the start of clay season, but as of now, the default answer is going to be no. I mean, that's that's how we're going to start, and then I will tell you if uh, if anything changes. Right? You got to start it no, because that's how it's been. Um, I will say I am very interested in seeing if the recent trend continues that Nadal has not really been his dominant self until Roland Garros. That is to say that you know, his success at Monte Carlo and Madrid and Barcelona, which I don't know that he'll play. I know that he hasn't played that every year recently, but uh, his results at, at these warm-up events, it used to be pretty much the Nadal sweep as soon as clay court season hit. And I'll throw Rome in there, even though I know Nadal off memory, I want to say he won Rome in 2019. But you know, he, he has not been as good in these warm-up events in the last couple of years. And then he's just rounded into form in time, right? You have the, the Schwartzman loss in Rome last year. You have the Fanini loss at Monte Carlo last year. I believe he lost a team in Barcelona that year as well. So will we see kind of... How will Nadal do in those warm-up tournaments? I, I am curious to see because he used to really own all of them. And now maybe just physically... Uh, or because of the time off that he takes kind of in, in the lead up, he's just not quite as dominant in those. So I, I'm curious about that. This one from Henrik Michaels. Which player's game today is closest to Federer? I see some similarities with Kyrgios and a little with Tsitsipas. Yeah, I definitely see a lot of the Roger Federer's serve in Nick Kyrgios in the respect that what makes Nick serve great is not necessarily how hard he hits it, 
although he does get a lot of MPH on the serve, it's really about the fact that it's the same toss every time and his delivery is very, very difficult to read. And the fact that he has so many different kinds of serves. He has a great slice serve. He has a really good flat serve. And he has that kick serve. So Kyrgios really has the the triple threat, so to speak. And Federer has every serve in the book, as does Nick. So I see that a lot. Obviously, the forehand dominant game as well uh, from the baseline. Um, Nick Kyrgios has that as well. For Tsitsipas, it's really the forehand, though. The forehand that Tsitsipas possesses has always reminded me of Roger Federer. Um, it is, you know, the kind of the the compactness that enables him to take it on the rise and take time away. And it's very comfortable inside the court in the transition game. You know, Federer has this way of kind of attacking a short ball and kind of running through that midcourt forehand, kind of gliding through the court and up to the net and hitting that forehand in between, but looking very unhindered on his way to the net. If I were to compare that to Nadal or Djokovic, I would say Nadal and Djokovic, they're just not as fluid in the transition game when they hit that approach shot forehand. Not quite as fluid. They kind of have to stop, hit the forehand, and then come up. Where Federer almost runs through it a little bit. And Tsitsipas does that same thing. And a couple of things happen there. It takes away that split second of time. He takes it just a fraction earlier. And he gets he closes the net, I think, a little bit quicker. Tsitsipas has that fluid transition game out of the forehand that really reminds me of Federer. And also just how he hits his spots on that forehand. We always talk about spot serving. What about spot baseline play. Uh, what about hitting your spot on that forehand approach shot and, and the the forehand um, the forehand aggression just in general? And they're both so precise. And they are great from the backhand side of the court, which is a commonality in the modern game when it comes to big forehands. Dominic Thiem, Nadal, um, they all, Rublev, as I spoke about last week on Monday Match Analysis, they all hit their forehand very well from the backhand side. What's your feeling on Sinner versus Medvedev lately? Seems like Sinner was easily outplayed, as are many big hitters against Medvedev. Ideas on Sinner's keys to improving against crafty players like Medvedev and Djokovic, who easily withstood his barrage in recent matches. Well, Sinner needs some net play, I think. Um, he doesn't really have it, and... I've always said this about Medvedev. There's going to be a lot of matchups where players are used to having success on offense. And this is true about any player as talented as Medvedev. And they're not going to have that same success because he covers the court so well and he's not giving you misses. And it's going to be very, very frustrating. And it was frustrating for Sinner. It wasn't a competitive match, really. Sinner could not hit through Medvedev, as this comment points out. And you really need to be able to finish at the net. Even though I outlined Medvedev's improved passing shots, that doesn't mean that that just means that I think he can overcome a, a tough matchup against a net rusher. I'm not saying that you need to be a net rusher, so to speak, to beat Medvedev. I'm saying that you need to at least put pressure on his defense and come up to net when the opportunity present uh, excuse me presents itself. And to me, Yannick Sinner 
hasn't developed that yet. He needs to add that extra layer to his offense. But ultimately, he also just wasn't as consistent as Medvedev. And a lot of that comes from his footwork. And I'll probably do a piece on that in the future. But uh, Sinner, Sinner does have some, some work to do here. He's not going to beat Medvedev on an indoor hardcourt at this stage. Next one from Music Lover. How is that not taken? I have a question. Can can a couple people be the same username on YouTube? Like, or or is it like one and done? Like I know two people can't have the same Twitter handle. If so, music lover. Wow, you must have you must have created this YouTube account in like 2008. The question is, how do you assess Federer's decision to pull out of Dubai? Do you think the lack of match play might slow his progress um towards a decent level? Well, I'm not going to question it. Obviously, he was sore and he wanted to take a week off. So I don't think that we really need to go too much further than that. Um, but in general, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. His goal, the goal that he has laid out for himself when it comes to when he wants to reach the peak of his conditioning, it's not very ambitious. Can I just say it how it is? It's not ambitious at all. He's saying that he wants to be ready to play his best tennis by Wimbledon. Let me let me check my my calendar here. That's not soon. That's not really soon. So Federer is going to take his time. I think that's what he's kind of telling to the world, and that's what he's telling himself. He's not going to rush this. He's he's just not in a rush. Who knows? Maybe clay court season is just kind of when he will start to and begin to round into form. And, uh, you know, I don't think we should be surprised that Federer is taking it slow. So the fact that he pulls out of Dubai, is that a good sign for his immediate prospects? No, it means that he's feeling sore and he doesn't really want to play through it. I can't blame him, but it's, this is just going to take time. So... This one from One Stuffter Syringe. Hi, Gil. I wanted to ask you about Hachinov. I remember when he beat Djokovic to win the Paris Masters. I think it was 2018, and you were really high on him there. You liked his game and even said you were, quote, all in on Hachinov to be the next big player. He was on fire. I do remember. But I haven't seen him having any more remarkable wins or runs in a while. Um... Do you think that do this is due to maybe being overshadowed by Medvedev and Rublev, who are be who are doing great, and he isn't in a great mindset, or that his game is just not up to par with the better players anymore? Are you still paying attention to Karen Hatchinov, and why do you think he isn't up there in the top ten? What can he do to get there, um, or has he leveled out? Okay, there's more to this comment, but I think we get the picture. Yeah, I mean, I I believe you. I don't remember saying saying all in, but I'm sure I said it. That's a miss. Yeah, he, he's not, he doesn't have that. Um, he's not what I, you know, clearly speaking, I talked about overreactions at the beginning of the show. Yeah, that was an overreaction. I was really excited by the way he was, uh, the way he was moving. I thought that his athleticism, his athleticism, his big hitting uh, was what excited me. He, he just, he is not serving big enough. I don't know why he is, really big, he's tall, he's strong, he should be serving great, and he's not. And his forehand is technically just not up to par. 
he struggles on faster courts. His backswing is too long. It doesn't flatten out well enough. When the ball is up at his shoulder, he can flatten the ball out. But if it's below his shoulder, he hits too spinny. And he can't hit through courts, really. Uh, he can't. He doesn't generate enough offense on the forehand. The backhand is still really, really good. But the fact is that Hachinov is not really amazing. Or he, he's not doing really anything at a top 10 level right now. He's still a difficult player. He's still a very good player. But he, he's just not there for a multitude of reasons. But the main thing is I want to see him serve bigger. The forehand, though, is kind of the reason why I don't really think he'll ever... I don't think he'll ever surge to the heights that it, it seemed like maybe he would after beating Djokovic in that Paris uh, indoor final because, you know, it's technically it's technically kind of a, a far way off. And we've talked about this with players like Borna Chorich. When your technique on a basic shot like a, like like your forehand and not kind of a periphery shot, like let's say a backhand slice, right? A shot as basic as a forehand, if your technique is problematic, it's probably going to stay that way and it's probably going to plague you for maybe the rest of your career. That's just kind of how things play out, right? Francis Tiafo would be another example. Like I don't see his technique ever drastically changing. Doesn't mean you can never be a really, really good player, have a great career, make a lot of money, be in the top 30, be in the top 20 maybe. But it means that you're going to have somewhat of a ceiling, wherever that may be. From Nixon, thought experiment. You have Djokovic, this 2021 version, with improved serve. What would hurt him game-wise game more at this stage of his career? Taking away his return and making it average or taking his improved serve and making it average? I think probably still taking away the return would be the, the most difficult thing for Djokovic. I mean, just look at what he did in that Australian Open final. It took over the match. The return was just lethal against Medvedev. So just thinking about that match in particular and just thinking about how special that return still is as a shot, I got to say the return. Additional question, is Nikola Jokic the greatest passing center that we have ever seen? I don't even think that is a question. I have never seen a dude that big pass the ball that well. Really fun to watch. That's one of my favorite skills in basketball, and I think it just goes underrated. Uh, I love watching a player who can rack up assists. Love that. Um, and I used to love watching Boris Diaw on the Spurs because he was showing me things as far as a passing big man goes that you don't often see. And obviously Jokic has taken that up three notches and he's really exciting exciting to watch the way he passes the ball. This one from Mark Marini. Hey Gil, do you see any resemblance with Basilashvili and Rublev? To my eye, they seem to have similar games, but Nikolas was able to break down RBA's defense better than Rublev. Nikolas seems to have the ability to spread the court off both wings, whereas I thought Rublev was unable to do that with his backhand. I actually don't think they're very similar. I'm going to go against you on this one. Uh... Yes, they are aggressive baseliners. They want to dictate off the ground. They they both hit the ball hard, but you know, I'm going to say something that <laughs> that that might be controversial. Basilishvili hits it way bigger than Rublev. Basilishvili hits it bigger than anyone. 
He he really does. Like it it's kind of a next level thing that that he has. I don't know what he strings his racket at. It seems like he strings his racket at thirty. Uh, exaggerating there. Uh, but let's talk about consistency here. And they're at different levels. Now, Rublev is a way more consistent player than Basilashvili. He's just not going to make the errors. And he, he doesn't quite hit as big, but there's a, a huge... Rublev moves a lot better, and he's a lot more consistent. So when it comes to play style, I just don't want to call Rublev kind of this... I don't want to put him in this grouping with this uh, really ultra-aggressive, wild, erratic, big-hitter, ball-basher in Basilashvili. I don't want ball basher. I don't want to make it like I don't want to make it sound like Basilishvili's game style is some kind of derogatory thing. But with all due respect, all is you know he hits the cover off the ball on every single shot, and that's kind of what he does. You know, so I I don't I don't quite see him as an Andre Rublev. I think there's a difference there. Ravi says, uh, you said that Novak doesn't have the the attributes to beat Nadal on clay and vice versa for Nadal on low bouncing courts. I didn't say they don't have the, I don't, I didn't say they can't beat each other. I just said it's harder and it's going to continue to be harder. When I, uh, I'm just saying nothing that Novak, Novak has not discovered something or added something to his game that is going to suddenly make it not as hard to beat Nadal on clay, vice versa for Nadal. That's that's what I'm saying. Not that they can't beat each other because they don't have what it takes. Okay, so continuing. So based on this, don't you think it's an obvious advantage to Novak all year round in terms of majors? Why don't you admit this? Secondly, which is the most difficult surface to be consistent on? I think it's grass. Do you agree? What similarities and differences do you see uh, in the Australian Open 2019 and French Open 2020? And which do you rate higher? A couple of ones in there. Okay, uh, fairness of the slams, honestly, there's four. There's four slams and three surfaces. So, and the hard courts play pretty differently. Australian Open plays lower bouncing and faster, and U.S. Open plays slower and higher bouncing. So, like, as long as all four slams are different, you're not going to see me complaining. Why don't I talk about that? Why don't I use that as some kind of... I don't know, talking about who has it easier in terms of winning slams. It's because I'm not interested. I, I'm, I'm not interested. I don't have an agenda, basically, is why I'm not going to talk about that, right? Uh, again, all of th this is what happens with the GOAT debate. There's all these different metrics that argue for each player that says, well, it's harder for them or it's easier for them and, and that gives them an easier path to win more majors and they played during this era, which makes is, is why they have more majors than that guy. I, I don't engage in that because I think it's silly, right? And, or not that I don't, not that I think it's silly, but I'm not interested in it. It doesn't interest me personally, right? And if it interests you, that's fine, but it doesn't interest me. And this gets into um, the 311 week thing, um, to everyone who said, who said, I took a little heat for this for everyone who said, well, it's, it's horrible that you didn't spend more time talking about it. 
and I want to be very clear about the things I said. I'll just reiterate. I put it at the top of the show because it's really important and an incredible accomplishment. And I said, I highlighted its importance, emphasized the weight of the accomplishment, which is to say that it is the second most important thing in the sport. Winning majors is the best accomplishment that there is in this sport. The best accomplishment, the number one. And then it is being number one. And when it comes to being number one, there are a couple metrics. There is how many weeks you spend at number one and how many times you end the year at number one. Those are the main ones. And Novak now stands alone as the player with the most weeks at number one. If he ends the year one more time at number one, he will pass Pete Sampras and he will be the king of that stat as well. That would make him just, by all metrics, the best player ever when it comes to holding the number one ranking position on the men's side, right? That's, it's enormous. But remember, I have to do a 25-minute show here where my goal is to tell you things that you don't know. My goal is to, is to be insightful, be entertaining. Uh, I'm trying to be interesting and look... I didn't have anything here for you here. That, that that's that's it. End of the end of story. Um, when Nadal won his twentieth major to tie Roger Federer, I did not talk about that for twenty minutes. I talked about it for maybe one minute, maybe two minutes. Why? Because I'm going to talk about the match. I'm going to talk about how we beat Djokovic there. I'm not going to talk about the fact that he equaled Roger Federer with twenty because. The way that people are going to extrapolate that is basically by comparing it and making declarations about the GOAT race. And as I've just outlined, I'm not going to do that because I'm not interested in that. So if you if you tuned into my channel last week expecting me to break down the 311 number in respect to the GOAT race, come on. I mean, that's not what I do. It's not what I do. Not what I'm going to do. So you'll have to get that elsewhere. I am not going to respond to every major accomplishment by Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. I'm, my response to that is not going to be like, oh, well, this is a great excuse to do the GOAT debate. It's not gonna, I'm not going to do that. So if I had more time, and I, and I really wanted to do this, and I will do this at some point, uh, the only thing that I could have thought of that that I that I could have done is maybe I could have uh, talked about Novak Djokovic's career at large as a whole, like literally, uh, from his rise in 2011 to his dominance of the of the 2010s decades, and I could have talking talked about Djokovic's career like macro, 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 and I suppose I at some point in time I can do that piece. And 311 could have been an excuse to do that piece. But that's quite frankly the only thing I can think of that, that would have allowed me to talk about that for longer than I did. Okay, rant over. SJ, so I heard that Roddick tried to fight a player whose name rhymes with Shmovak Shmokovic. That's his words. Uh, in the locker room uh, in 2008. He said he slammed him against the locker, but then saw how big Djokovic's trainer was and backed off. If the fight happened, are you picking Roddick or Djokovic? 
Um, here's what I think about fights when there's not alcohol involved. I think the 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 one who tried to initiate that fight speaks volumes, right? If you're sober, if you're drunk, it's another story. But if you're sober and you try to fight someone, you're pretty confident you're going to win. And unless Djokovic has some hidden training in, involved, right? Maybe some, some jiu-jitsu in there, right? As he trained. I don't think so, right? This is, a, this is someone who uh, I think is true to his craft, you know, a tennis player through and through. Um, I would probably go as a general rule with the guy who tries to initiate the fight when sober. Because you probably think you're going to win. Otherwise, you wouldn't start the fight, right? That's all I'll say. Also, Novak's a lover and not a fighter. That 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 is very clear. Andrew Torres, what do you make a twenty-seven-year-old journeyman Karatsev making a dream run at AO twenty-one? Where did that come from, and will he sustain it? He acted and performed like he belonged. Is there any underlying reason he's come out of nowhere to shock the tennis world? Couple things. First of all, I think most players take offense to the word journeyman, so I would stay away from using it. Um, I don't really get it. I don't really get why it's offensive, but if it's offensive, it's offensive. So we can just stop using it. I have no problem with that. So, um, Karatsev is just, it's funny. The, the pandemic is the only thing you can point to the pause because that's when his unbelievable form started after that, after the pause. So you have to think that his perspective changed, how he th how he thought about the game, you know, and I'm not going to do too much speculation here, but the most interesting part of Karatsev's story is it really did seem like that is what brought him out of the whatever mindset, whatever state of mind or level of professionalism that he brought to his career prior to the pandemic pause. Clearly that changed it. And the one thing I will say is hopefully we get more information um, about what it really was in Aslan's transformation and, and what and what created that. Adil McDonald, Bautista Agut seemed to play at almost a big three level against Rublev. What will he do differently? Uh, oh, what did he do differently and can he maintain it? He's absolutely unbelievable sometimes, RBA. He's tremendous, so it doesn't really come as a surprise. He's done it before. Uh, injuries have gotten in the way at times, and he's a little bit surface dependent. I think when the when the court bounce, when the courts bounce higher, when the courts get too slow, it bothers him a lot. But really, you know, I, I think that RBA at his best is at Andre Rublev's level. I, I would say for the most part, so it doesn't doesn't really surprise me. Uh, Anuj Beatles, does Tsitsipas have any chance of winning a major until he fixes his backhand slice and in particular his backhand return? Well, the only thing, the only major that really protects him at this stage is the French. But obviously, Rafa Nadal generally plays that tournament and wins it. So the short answer would kind of be no, that needs to get better. I think that's the short answer. From shown, um, from shown, who is the greatest athlete of all time? Hmm. How about that? 
All right. Here's my theory on this, and this is the last one. It's a fun one. When I think athlete, I don't want to think too much about like who's great at sports, right? Because like golf is a sport, but am I going to pick a golfer as the greatest athlete of all time? Probably not because although you need to be athletic, you don't need to be the greatest athlete of all time to be great at golf. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick five categories here. Strength. Okay. Cardio, footwork, hand-eye coordination, and agility. Those are my five attributes. If you are asking me, out of those five attributes, who has the greatest combination in the history of sports, I would probably have to go with LeBron James. Probably LeBron James. I think he is he is strong, he is fast, he is agile and you know moves well on his feet. Uh cardio wise, I mean basketball players are, are generally pretty good. So all around, I, I think LeBron James is I would say the the number one greatest athletic specimen I have ever seen. Um but th- that's something I'd I'd love to hear your opinions on that. It's thinking in that frame of mind, not the most dominant Right, not you know, not who's the most dominant sportsman of all time. I'm talking athlete. Um, I'm curious to to hear what you guys think um, because that that is an interesting question. All right, that'll do it for this edition of Monday Match Analysis. Remember, I'm available on all podcast platforms and follow me on Twitter at Gill underscore Gross. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time.